At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles. Each of these episodes features just one story from years past. If you're new to Risk, you should know that the podcast can be very uncensored. This week, a story by the author of the phenomenal bestseller, Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality. It's the brilliant Christopher Ryan. Christopher shared this story on the podcast in May of 2013, and here he is now with a story we call Outside the Comfort Zone. I was on track to do a PhD at Oxford in literature and then be a tenured professor somewhere by the time I was 30. But I found a loophole in the student handbook that allowed me to skip my junior year of college and still graduate on time. So I skipped the year to save my parents' tuition money and I went to Alaska. I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska. During that experience, I met so many amazing people that had no fucking clue who Nietzsche was or Joseph Conrad or Emerson or Thoreau or all these people that I was studying, the stuff that was so important to me. And I sort of looked back at my friends who were all these, you know, verified geniuses and realized they were sort of assholes and that I didn't really want to be like that. I mean, they were good to me, they were kind to me, but they would have been real assholes if any of these people had stumbled into their world. And here I was stumbling into this other world and I was being welcomed and assisted and people were taking me home and feeding me and letting me sleep on their sofa. And I was welcomed into their lives in a way that my friends wouldn't have welcomed other strangers into their lives. So I had this sort of midlife crisis at 20 and realized that I was going in the wrong direction. And so what I said was, until I'm 30, I'm not going to commit to anything. I'm just going to travel around the world, have adventures and let life do what it will to me. 
I was just talking with a friend about that last night, actually, a guy who'd made a lot of money. We were talking about travel because he'd made a bunch of money and he, he said, now what do I do? I thought this would make me happy and instead I'm just lost. I was saying to him that the thing about money is money buys you comfort, but comfort is numbness. The meaning of life and the interesting things that happen in life, the surprises in life are things that happen when you can't afford to be comfortable, when you're backpacking as opposed to flying on your private jet to a five-star hotel. You know, that's when you meet the interesting people, when you're hitchhiking. Of course, you got to stand by the side of the road and deal with Jesus freaks and rapists, but you're going to meet some really interesting people along the way. And that's what you have to pay for it. And if you can avoid paying for it, most of us will avoid it. Most of us will opt for comfort. But that's a fatal mistake because what protects you from inconvenience also removes you from life. When my life was so full of change because I was traveling... And again, I was marking the travel by full moons. Like I remember in India, I was in Kashmir on uh, Dal Lake in Srinagar, and it was a full moon. And I thought, okay, so let's see, I want to be at the Taj Mahal for the next full moon. So I went traveling, blah, blah, blah. A month later, I'm at the Taj Mahal for the next full moon. And I look back and say, that was a month? That feels like years. I think of all the people I've met, all the things I've seen, all the experiences, all the surprises, all the, it was just so much packed into that one month. And that's what gave me the sense that like the length of your life isn't measured in years. It's measured in experiences and friendships and surprises and discomforts. And, you know, that's what measures time because time is a measure of change. So when this experience in Tikal happened, I was 27. It was the full moon of April in 1989. And my girlfriend, Anna, met me in Guadalajara, and then we traveled together from there. In fact, just a couple months before that, we had been at Monte Alban near Oaxaca, which is another amazing um, complex of ruins We'd been there for a full moon, and I had some LSD with me, and we met some people in Oaxaca and invited them to join us, and five or six of us went up and spent the full moon night there tripping and having a pretty bizarre experience there. So we decided to repeat the experience at Tikal, and one of the things that I very much respect about hallucinogens is their ability to remove cognitive filters. And I think that's why they're so important as teaching tools in many traditional societies and probably why they're so forbidden in our society, you know, because they do tend to reveal truths that we spend all our energy and time trying to deny and avoid. They bring it right in your face. And so that can be terrifying for people who are uh, very invested in their denial, or it can be extremely liberating for, you know, someone who just needs a nudge to sort of get through the fire and get out on the other side. 
So my relationship with hallucinogens in general, I felt was very respectful and I would take them in sacred places in order to absorb more of the experience of being in that place. You know, that was one of the things that I tried to use them for. And so that's why we use them there in Tikal, because it's this Mayan ruin. So it's a magical place. It's a fascinating place, full of all sorts of interesting energy. Just the feeling of being in the ruins of a massive city that has been, you know, just overtaken by jungle for the last thousand years or 1500 years is, is, you know, wow. You know, it's like, imagine being in Manhattan 1500 years after it's over, you know, it's like that, but even more so because it's jungle. Fabrizio and Solange didn't know that Anna and I were going to take the acid. And we never mentioned it to them. But we took the acid maybe an hour before we would be at the top of the temple so that we'd be tripping by the time we got up there. But we'd still be more or less reliable to, you know, climb over all the boulders and rocks and the roots and these um, pipe ladders that are drilled into the side of the temple. And we finally got up to the platform where people hang out. And you're above the tree line as well. So you're looking down at the lush jungle tree line below you and you hear the howler monkeys. It was a little before dusk uh, when we set off. So we got up there and the moon starts to rise just as the sun's setting. And then above that was this huge bank of clouds, thick storm clouds. You could see rain falling in the distance And the setting sun illuminated a a rainbow in the rain that was falling in the distance. It was really beautiful. Anna and I are tripping pretty strong at this point. And Fabrizio and Solange said, yeah, we're going to go back to the campsite because it's just going to be dark up here for another three or four hours. And Anna and I weren't feeling like doing any walking at this point. So we said, yeah, we're just going to hang out here. You guys go ahead. But I went over to the edge of the the ledge to hold a flashlight for them because they were going down this ladder that was probably 30 feet straight down the side of the temple. And then they got to the bottom of the ladder and said, okay, we'll see you back at the campsite. I said, yeah, okay, see you later. And I turned to step to go back to Anna, and that's when I felt this sting, this bite or something on my foot. And I shone the light down, and I saw this scorpion running up the wall. And then I looked on the wall and there were others. There were four or five I saw just like, you know, slittering around on this wall. It's like, holy shit, this whole temple is covered with scorpions. And luckily I didn't jump when it bit me because if I had jumped, I would have gone over the ledge and I would have been dead for sure. It was 30 feet down to rock. And it stung me on my little toe. I was like an idiot. I was wearing sandals in the jungle, you know, real smart move there. And I went back to Anna, and I said to Anna, hey, I just got bit by a scorpion, you know, and be careful because they're all over the place here. She said, well, is that dangerous? And I said, I don't know. By this point, a lot of people had left, right, because now it was pitch black. But there were these two guys sitting over on the ledge. And we walked over to them, and they were Italian, it turns out, didn't speak any English. 
But Ana spoke Spanish. She was Puerto Rican. She spoke Spanish so they could communicate. And she said to them, you know, do you guys know anything about scorpions? And my boyfriend just got bit. They said, no, what? no, well. And, and so these guys were involved in our situation suddenly. And while we're talking with them, this Guatemalan guy comes up the ladder. Uh, he's like a night guard. He's got this old bolt action rifle, you know. I have no idea what this guy is doing up there, like what he's going to shoot from the top of this temple in the jungle. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, he's stationed there. So we go over to him, and Ana says to him in Spanish, do you know anything about the scorpions? Are they dangerous? And he says, si, son letales. They're lethal. Ana immediately started crying, and the Italian guys were very uh, everyone was upset and going through their own individual reactions and my feeling was i needed to get down from the temple because there was no way anyone could carry me down you know we'd come up a series of ladders and all sorts of very awkward climbing over roots and boulders and this wasn't the sort of place where you'd get a helicopter coming in and airlifting you or something we were days from the nearest hospital so i initially just sort of felt i need to focus on getting myself down before this becomes impossible for me to move or something anna was very upset from my perspective inconveniently so i i'm sorry to say i mean I, I i felt like i couldn't afford to really be very compassionate at that moment i just felt like i need to do what i need to do and so one of the italian guys said okay look i'll stay with anna you guys go ahead for a while i, I was sort of judgmental honestly of her not being more supportive or, or of not keeping her shit together more or whatever but, you know, A, she was tripping. So, you know, you got to give her the benefit of the doubt there. And B, in later years, I look back and I said, you know, it's probably a lot harder to see someone you love dying than to die yourself. The thing she was thinking about how she's going to call my parents or, your, your, you know, how she's going to deal with all this in many ways was probably more upsetting than the things I was thinking. I started going down the ladder and with this Italian guy and working our way down toward the jungle floor, probably took us 20 minutes or so to, to get all the way down. And I remember someone telling me there were some American archaeologists who were working there investigating the temples and the ruins and stuff. And I thought if anyone's going to have an anti-venom, I didn't even know, know if there was an anti-venom, but if anyone would have it, it would be these American archaeologists. So I need to find them. So we finally got down to the floor. And by the time we got down to the floor, I could feel the poison running up my leg. It was like a burning chili pepper sensation running up along the bone of my leg. And when it got to the top of a muscle, it would freeze the muscle. So by the time we got down to the bottom, my leg was pretty much stiff all the way above the knee. So I was sort of, you know, dragging my leg along and we're walking through this jungle and I remember all these amazing 
glowing insects and centipedes and you know bugs that would just fly you know big bugs flying by and they're all glowing in this iridescent green sort of light very strange experience of the jungle and of course we got lost because there are no signs or anything they're just pathways going from temple to temple and that's when i had time to think about what i was going through and that's i mean i it was so strange because there i was walking with this italian guy and i was saying what i believe to be my last words and this guy didn't speak a word of english you know he, he didn't understand a word i was saying and i remember he would like put his arm around me or you know touch my back or something and i, I was crying part of the time i i, I don't remember but I was laughing, too, because I, I remember thinking, this is so funny. You know, I'm dying. I'm saying my last words to this guy who has no fucking clue what I'm talking about. And I've never seen his face. Because when we went over to talk to them, it was already pitch black. I didn't shine the flashlight in their faces. This whole thing happened without ever seeing his face. And I guess he'd never seen mine either. So we were walking through this darkness together, sharing this incredibly intimate moment with <laughs> complete strangers. Honestly, what I felt was anguish because of the pain my parents would have felt. My parents had been so generous and uh selfless in the way they accepted the crazy shit i was doing and the crazy risks i was taking with my life and to give them you know a dead body in return didn't seem like um the right way to do it once the poison got up to my hip then my whole right leg was frozen and then my tongue started to swell and my throat swelled so I couldn't swallow. And I guess I was salivating a lot because I was spitting and my lips were all tingly and weird. But I was sort of disconnected from that. I was observing it. And I thought this is when the poison's going to get to my heart and lungs and that'll be when it's over. You know, if it's freezing my leg muscles and... Once it gets to my heart muscle, that's where it all ends. This is when I, I really arrived at this moment of peace where I, I looked at my life and I said, okay, I'm 27 years old. That's pretty young to be dying, but what a way to die. This is a cool fucking way to die. You know, my friends are going to hear about this and they're going to raise a glass and they're going to be smiles and there's going to be sadness, but it's going to be like, wow, that guy, you know, he had his fucking adventure. That's what he wanted. He had it. And he, he died doing what he loved. And yeah, and I've been around the world and I've loved beautiful, wonderful women and they've loved me and I've, you know, been paid lots of money to do silly jobs and I had the courage to quit those jobs and go off and do what I wanted to do and I've had a full life. From the moment I stopped being afraid to die, I felt 
peace, I felt happiness, and I even felt pride, I think. I was already looking at it like an incredible gift. But in the meantime, we're walking around trying to find these archaeologists, and we eventually we came out, and there's this little parking lot, and there was a Guatemalan kid there, maybe 14, 15 years old, and the Italian guy explained the situation to him, and the kid looked at me like, holy shit, oh my God. And so he said, come, come. And he took us to this little hut and banged on the door of the hut, and nobody answered. Bang, 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 bang. Finally, a light came on, and this guy opens the door, and he was like, obviously shit-faced, like drool on his face and everything. So he opened the door and let us in, and the the kid said, this is the doctor. Now, he's no doctor. This guy was, you know, whatever, a medic, or I don't know what he was. But we went in, and he sat me down on a chair, and he looked at my foot where the scorpion had stung me, and he asked me to describe the scorpion to him. And I told him, yeah, it was two and a half, three inches, whatever, sort of a green-gray color. And he said, oh, no, no, this is alacran not scorpion. Apparently, there are different names for two different similar creatures that we would call in English scorpions. But in Spanish, a scorpion in Guatemala is a very small red thing that will kill you. But the alacran, which is a bigger gray-green thing, is sort of like a rattlesnake bite or something. It can fuck you up, but it won't necessarily kill you if you don't have heart problems or you're not old or a child or something. So he said, look, if you're still alive now, this bit you two and a half hours ago, you've already passed the most dangerous point. You'll be okay. He gave me a pill, which must have been an aspirin or a Tylenol or something. And he scooped some water out of this bucket he had sitting there and gave it to me. And of course, I knew I'd been traveling a long time. You never drink water out of a bucket in the tropics. But this guy just told me I wasn't going to die. So I would have done anything he'd said, you know. So I took the pill. I drank the water. We thanked him. And then uh, we went back to the campsite. Anna was at the campsite with Fabrizio and Solange. And uh, they had some beer, and we drank the beer, and we told them the story, and oh my God, what a story. And by now the moon had come back out, but we were still under the canopy of the trees, so we could just see the moon through the trees, and I think we had a fire. And, and my tongue continued to tingle for days after that. My tongue and my lips were still tingling. Then we went to this place just maybe an hour south of Tikal. It was a ranch that had been bought by an American couple who adopted a few Guatemalan kids, and they converted the ranch into a guest house um, traveler stop. The guy, his name was uh, Michael Devine, the guy who uh, owned it, was a really sweet, wonderful man. And um, one morning, maybe a week after we'd arrived, I woke up with a really bad headache behind my eyes. I went down for breakfast and I explained to Michael what I was feeling. And he looked at me, he said, man, I think you have hepatitis. And uh, I did. I had hepatitis that I had caught from that fucking jungle doctor and his bucket of water. And uh, I ended up staying there for about a month 
I remember lying there and there was a bottle of water next to the bed and thinking, okay, I need some water. And, and for like 10 minutes, gathering the strength to reach out and grab the bottle of water. And then another 10 minutes to bring it back to my chest. And then another 10 to bring it up to my mouth. It was just like I had no energy at all. It was really intense. You know, I, I went through the process of dying without actually dying. What a gift. What an amazing gift. So it's almost like a vaccination, you know, where they give you a weakened strain of the virus so you can survive the real shit down the road. And so I kind of felt like that, like, what a great gift, you know, and if a month with hepatitis is what I have to pay, so what? I'll pay it. Whatever I have to pay, I'll pay it. And ever since, I've looked at my life before that night and after that night. That's, that's a separation point in my life where I feel that everything that's happened since then has been gravy. Everything from the full moon of April 1989 is extra. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.